Hi, I'm Katrina Daniel, and welcome to Primetime Crime, a podcast for people who want to know what goes on behind the scenes of the most notorious trending crime stories and what's going on in the minds of those involved in those stories. What are the detectives, the judges, the defense attorneys, and the prosecutors thinking? You'll hear it all on Primetime Crime, the podcast. I'm Katrina Daniel. This is Primetime Crime. Lori Vallow Daybell of the doomsday cult group Daybells, who believes that her children were inhabited by zombies, has been found currently mentally incompetent to stand trial. So a year after she's been arrested on a whole slew of serious charges in the murders of her two children, J.J. and Tylee, Lori Vallow Daybell, alleged child killer, turns out she's been found by one psychologist, for the defense of course, to be mentally unfit to stand trial at this time. That's the key phrase here at this time. The special prosecutor, Ron Wood, first said he was going to fight her mentally unfit claim, but just now he has reversed his decision and Lori Vallow-Daybell is now in a mental hospital. This, in effect, just puts a 90-day pause in the case against her. She has just now been committed to a psychiatric hospital for at least the next three months. She's ordered to undergo restorative treatment. Here to explain all this for us is defense attorney Bruce Fleischer. Joining me now is defense attorney extraordinaire Bruce Fleischer. Bruce, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Let's talk Lori Vallow Daybell and her recent declaration or the psychologist's recent declaration of her being incompetent to stand trial. Tell me what that means. Well, number one, it's a fascinating case. Yeah, it is. And what it means is I'm sure that the defense retained a psychiatrist or a psychologist yes. who uh, opined to the, effect, to the effect that she cannot communicate with counsel because she's incompetent to communicate with counsel. And it also means that uh, based upon the Dusky standard, that's a case called the United States versus Dusky. It deals with competency and, and how high the bar or how low the bar should be on what a defendant can understand or not understand, what a defendant can do or not do. Number one, it's communicating with defense counsel. Uh, you know, in, case, in criminal cases, discovery is provided by the prosecution. So her attorney or attorneys have to go over the discovery with her. Um, the defendant has to understand the legal process, the jury system, what the prosecutor does, what the defense does, and what the judge does, and of course, what the jury does. And I'm assuming that her attorney, through the psychologist, is saying she's incompetent to assist counsel, and therefore, um, a ruling should be made that she should be found incompetent. And that normally means in Florida, the defendant will be sent off to a state hospital for probably a three to six month period and to determine if they can be restored to competency and if, in fact, psychotropic drugs can be used to utilize uh, in the process to get her to become competent again. 
It may be that her lawyer might be thinking of, this could possibly be an insanity case. And based upon the scenario with the husband and wife, perhaps her husband could be accused of substantial domination of her to do these things. Well, she's been competent, allegedly, in the past. How come they can rely on the uh, testimony or, or the opinion of just one psychologist? They never do that. Well, what I'm thus far in this case. Well, if the defense says she's incompetent, the prosecution has the right to have their own expert evaluate her, and the court sometimes appoints uh, a third expert. And after the experts evaluate her and render opinions and reports, then there's a competency hearing. And the judge takes testimony from all the doctors to determine whether or not the court believes she's competent to stand trial or not competent to stand trial. You have some inside information. I I know that you've spoken with um, reporters that are good friends of yours that you've worked with a lot in the past. Tell me what their opinions were. And, And I noticed you alluded to the fact that she may have been dominated or bullied or whatever by Chad Daybell? Substantial domination of another is a statutory mitigator in Florida and probably in other states where in the event that they go to trial and she is convicted of first degree murder and the state of Utah, right? Idaho. Idaho, I'm sorry. Yeah. Continues to seek the death penalty then that mitigation can be brought forth to explain why she might have participated in these criminal acts, in addition to other mitigation, other mental health issues, whether or not she was addicted to drugs or alcohol, whether she was an abused woman in the past, the subject of domestic violence. Uh, There are all types of factors, you know, in a case like this to be considered. But we're only getting to first base with the competency issue. So there's going to be a competency issue unless the state of Idaho uh, stipulates, based upon the opinion of the defense expert, that she's incompetent and she goes away for a while. That psychologist that was used by the defense waited a year before he had her evaluated. So that gives the uh, defense attorney some credibility and he didn't immediately seize on uh, an incompetency defense. Um, He waited a year to get to know her and now they are suggesting restorative treatment. What is that? What could that be? Well, that means that the defendant gets shipped off to a state hospital and she is uh, under the jurisdiction of that state hospital. And the state hospital has psychologists and psychiatrists and therapists who work with her to get her to regain competency, which is grasping what's really happening in the real world. And they have classes to teach people how to become competent again. Really? Sounds ludicrous, but um, this is part of part of what happens in Florida. And as I say, the the test for competency is very low. And some people can be psychotic, but still not be competent and still be competent to stand trial. The competency issue is right now at this juncture, she's incompetent. 
you know, the lawyers will get some telltale signs when they speak to their client and the client doesn't look them in the eye and, and indicate that they comprehend what the lawyer is saying. And the lawyer is presenting certain facts to the client stating, this is what the prosecution says. And it's really communication with your lawyer. And if the lawyer tells the court, judge, I can't communicate with her. She needs help and she's not competent right now. All the proceedings stop after the competency hearing. Speedy trial is waived and she goes into treatment. Will they use drugs to try to and to try to make her comp- gain competency again? Or they may. They may give her, she may be bipolar. They may give her psychotropics and different meds for bipolar, for schizophrenia, for any type of uh, malady under DSM 5-2A, which is the psychological uh, manual, psychiatric manual for mental health. It's recognized in the court system. She, she being Lori Vallow Daybell, maintains her children and her ex-husband, Charles Vallow, were um, under the influence or inhabited by zombies of other people. And that she is preparing the world for the rescue or the savior of like 144,000 people. And that's it. All the rest of us are... <laughs> not worthy. Um, does that, in your opinion, strike you as competence? No, it's, it strikes me as that she's schizophrenic. Ah, and, really? And, she, okay. and she's psychotic and she believes certain things. She may also suffer from a severe delusional disorder where, you know, reality is a whole lot different than what she believes in. I don't know what her past mental health history is. That would certainly be a big help to the defense and the court if she has some type of mental health history that she had taken uh, prescription drugs or maybe non-prescription drugs uh, in the past. Could she skate on this charge for the rest of her life ostensibly? No, because sooner or later, the state of Idaho is going to say she's competent. We're returning her back to court. Now, some people, and I have, I did one insanity case years ago where um, my client would never be restored to competency. He was just too far gone. He was, uh, we believe he was a serial killer and he was charged in one case that I represented him in along with um, Jack Blumenfeld, who you may remember Jack. And we had three experts say, not competent to stand trial. And they did find that he was uh, insane of the offenses. But he didn't want to believe that there was anything wrong with him. So he fought all this. And he could have been found not guilty by reason of insanity by a judge or a jury. And he didn't like that. So he wound up pleading guilty to first degree murder, receiving a life sentence. Uh, because he was so crazy. But he was evaluated by some very good mental health professionals right before we took the plea. And they said, although he may have a triple diagnosis, he's competent to understand the nature and consequences of his plea and the facts of the case. How rare is it to be found 
not guilty by reason of insanity? It's the hardest defense to win with. It's like entrapment. It's easier to win an entrapment case than an insanity case. But uh, I, I have tried. Um, I have tried some of those cases, and uh, I, I, I tried one where the it was a very complicated, gruesome murder. Um, I went insanity. The case was reversed in appeal, came back for trial, and after five days of jury selection, the state threw in the towel and we arrived at a plea. But, you know, the burden's on you to bring forth the insanity defense, and then the state has the opportunity to rebut that with their own experts. So that's actually, I think, where the Laurie Vallow Daybell case lies now. Um, the prosecution is contesting that um, incompetency declaration for the time being. And does it, it ultimately rests in the hands of the judge, correct? It, re it rests in the hands of the judge for the competency of the defendant to go forward with trial. So she, you're saying she can't skate on this forever? Not unless she's not restorable. Okay. Who determines that? A uh, judge after hearing expert testimony. Now, I, I did have uh, one case that I got out of uh, right before the pandemic, and my client had a severe delusional disorder. I didn't believe he was competent to stand trial, but two experts said he was, and one, my expert said he wasn't. The judge believed the two state experts, and uh, he, he was so delusional that I could not communicate with him. And he wound up uh, telling the court he wanted to represent himself, which is highly unusual, but the judge allowed him to do that. And then I was appointed to represent him as standby counsel, where I could advise him of certain legal issues, but the final decision-making was his alone. And then he was so paranoid that he thought that I would only harm him, so I withdrew as counsel and somebody else inherited that headache. Take us into a session with a client that you cannot communicate with. Give us an example conversation if you could. Lawyers want to speak to their clients about, about the facts of the case and say, you know, we've received this discovery. Here are the reports. Here are the statements. Here are the lab reports. Here's all the evidence they want to use against you. You know, well, how we need to respond to this, even though the burden of proof is upon the state, we're going to have a lot of explaining to do in the defense of the case. Maybe we need some experts. Um, maybe we need to um, analyze all this. And when that happens, clients may give you a blank stare and they may want to talk about anything but the case. Or they'll say, well, I don't know that person. I don't know who that is. And, and of course, there's evidence that there was a relationship between the defendant and that person. So it's like they avoid talking about the facts of the case, or they're kind of off in la-la land where they can't focus on anything. And that may be because of too many drugs and too much alcohol or a mixture of that over the years. There also could be head trauma you know, cognitive reasoning and things like that. 
And this would frequently comes up in death penalty cases. And that's why we always bring in a forensic psychologist and a forensic neuropsychologist and a psychiatrist and sometimes a forensic neurologist to determine is if there brain damage, you know, how does someone function? What's the difference between all the neuropsychologists and forensic? A forensic psychologist deals with the basic issues in psychology in evaluating the defendant after a very long uh, interview, could take a couple of days. Then there's tests that are administered to determine what disorders they may have. They could be bipolar, they could be schizophrenic, they could be delusional. There's a, there's a garden variety number of mental health issues that a defendant can have. A neuropsychologist has an advanced degree over the normal psychologist, and they study the brain, the development of the brain, and how the brain has been possibly affected by head trauma, uh, problems at birth, you know, forceps deliveries or breech births or things like that. And they measure cognitive testing. You know, where this person is, their level of math understanding, their level of reading and English understanding, you know, what their IQ is and all that. And what are their motor, how are their motor functions? And, you know, get a pretty good idea from the testing uh, where someone is cognitively speaking. Then if they believe that there's something really organically wrong with the defendant, they'll probably say, we need to do a PET scan or a CAT scan to see what's wrong with the defendant. Many times it doesn't show up on scans, and many times it does. Um, I guess a perfect example is uh, I was representing a young man from Puerto Rico who was involved in a bank robbery with three other people, and they shot a security guard who was walking out to the parking lot in those days with the money trays and the tellers. And um, my client fired the fatal shot after the police officer, the off-duty police officer was, was shot and he died. And I did my due diligence and we had him examined by all types of doctors. And my neurologist said, there's definitely something wrong with him. We need to do the scans. And um, he was taken to a hospital for the scans and we got the scans back. And um, the doctor who had diagnosed Muhammad Ali with pugilistic dementia, which is a boxer's disease, mm -hmm. said he had what's known as a caverna septa in the frontal lobe of his head, which was perfect because he was a boxer in Puerto Rico. And we used that as a mitigation case. So- Did it work? Did not work. Did not. And we tried the case twice. We tried the case twice. It was seven, five, eight to four for death. And he's my only client on death row in all the 38 cases I've tried, capital cases. And he will be executed one day. What would you do if you were Lori Vallow, Daybell's defense attorney now? Well, number one, I'd retain a really great investigator. Number two, I would retain a mitigation expert who normally has a sociology or psychology background to get all the important information about this person's life, her development, um, 
relationships, everything there is to know. I would certainly have a forensic psychologist examine her. I would have a forensic neuropsychologist examine her. And then in the event that those doctors told me we need to go further, we'd go on with the scans and everything else. Because when they're seeking the death penalty, you as a defense lawyer, you better have every tool in the toolbox to investigate and present to uh, the state attorney as to why they should waive the death penalty. Or in the event you get to a penalty phase, you're going to have the experts say why this defendant is like this. What happened in her life to make her uh, the way she is and mitigate the horrible things of what she did? Because what could be worse than killing your own children? Walking hand in hand with your fourth or fifth husband in Hawaii while they're digging for your children's bodies in his backyard. Yeah, I saw that episode. (laughs) I saw Keith Morrison riding in the Jeep doing that investigation. Can you talk about what he told you about the story? He actually didn't tell me anything. I, you know, when I read it in the paper, I saw it in the news. uh, I I texted him and I said, looks like you're going to get to do that third segment of, of this, the trilogy. And uh, we, we never really talked about the case. Um, you know, we have talked about the case in the past as to how sad or how sick it is. Yeah, yeah. But, that, but that's it. That's it. All right, who pays her? I don't know if she's got a private attorney. Uh, his name is Mark Means. Um, and if I don't think they've got the money to pay someone like you. Who pays for that in that case? The state of Idaho. That's kind of ironic, isn't it? Yeah. Well, what will happen is if she's indigent, they'll appoint the public defender's office. If the public defender has a conflict, then they'll go to the private bar uh, of highly qualified private attorneys who would take a case like this on an appointed basis. That would be you. Uh, Yes, it would be me. And the state of Idaho would be paying all the lawyer's fees which are less than what lawyers would normally charge privately, all the investigative, all the medical, all the psychiatric fees, everything. You know, this this case could easily cost um, state of Idaho, you know, a million, two million dollars. Take me into a conversation that you would have with a judge who would appoint a person like you, an attorney like you, on a case like this. What kind of things would you talk about with that judge? Well, most most states, if they have what's known as a a wheel, you know, for or a panel for lawyers, the next person gets appointed on the case. However, in capital cases, you must be death qualified. You must meet the rules of criminal procedure of that state to be totally qualified. And I've had cases in the past where I would receive a call from, let's say, the late Judge Teddy Klein, an old colleague and friend, and he called me. It was a federal murder case. And he called me and said, I'd like you to take a case. And I'd say, all right, Judge, tell me what you want me to do. And I I took the case. That's the way that that happens. Can you turn it down? You can turn it down. On what grounds? I, I think that these cases are so fascinating. Why would anyone want to turn that down? You know, when the baby lollipops case first happened in, I guess it was the 80s, I got a call from a judge to take the case. 
And of course, it was one of the ugliest cases in Dade County. Yeah. And I didn't even know this judge. And I said, how did you, you know, why did you pick me? He says, I called six judges and they all gave me your name as the, the person I should appoint. And I took the case. In this case, um, Lori Vallow Daybell and her fifth or whatever husband, Chad Daybell, also took the Social Security payments from his dead wife. Yes. Was exhumed. And they are awaiting the results of those tests because she all of a sudden died in her sleep at like age 45 or something. And also the two children. So does the fact that they uh, profited allegedly from the deaths of um, a 17 year old, an 11 year old and a 45 year old, does that does that factor in? Oh, that's a big factor. That's called pecuniary gain. That those people did that, those two defendants did that, uh, committed murder or murders uh, for pecuniary gain to gain access to the social security money or benefits. You know, your, your simple pecuniary gain case is a robbery. You know, people rob other people because they don't have money, that's pecuniary gain. But that is in fact a, um, a big uh, aggravator. And in this case, so they have pecuniary gain, they probably have cold calculated and premeditated CCP. They probably have hack, which is heinous, atrocious, and cruel. This is all planned out. If you believe the prosecution's case, although I haven't heard what that is, but I'm sure that things will unravel uh, in, in the media and in the press about all that. And there may be some other aggravators. And in addition to that, they may use one of the murders to show a course of conduct in the other murders. And, though, and that may become relevant to show that they killed his ex-wife. Mm -hmm. Okay, that could be possibly admissible against the children's death or vice versa. But that is all called, in the federal courts, Williams Rule and four, Federal Rule 404B. But this is a state case. So, all right. So if they were... They being Chad Daybell and Lori Daybell, um, she she is saying, or at least her defense attorney is saying that she is not competent to stand trial. But the fact that they had the presence of mind to uh, take the children's Social Security payments and have them directly deposited into her bank accounts, doesn't that show that she was at least competent enough to do that? Yeah, well, her competency at the time of the offense is important if you're talking about an insanity defense. But defendants can become incompetent for many reasons. They can become incompetent because they're thrown into a situation such as incarceration, which causes them severe depression, their surroundings, their environment. You know, it, it's, it's hard to say, but you know, you're looking at competency on the day that the lawyers are interviewing the clients and, and they're telling the judge, judge, I've met with my client in, in four occasions in the last four weeks. And I don't think she's competent. I don't think she's understand what I'm saying. And um, I, I can't communicate with her. So if a lawyer says to a judge, I can't communicate with my client, there has to be that those evaluations and competency hearings to determine, okay, is she really competent or not? And they have something called malingering, 
which is a psychological term. And it could be that defense psychiatrist, psychologist says she's incompetent to assist counsel. And then you may have a state doctor or an independent doctor who says, well, she's got some mental health issues, but I think she's malingering, which means faking. Yeah, faking. Got it. Well, we're, I'm sure going to revisit it. So thank you as usual for your generosity and your knowledge. My pleasure. Call me anytime. Thanks for listening to Primetime Crime, the podcast. Follow us on Facebook at Primetime Crime and on Instagram and Twitter at Primetime Crime underscore. Post your comments and tell us what true crime stories you'd like to hear about. Subscribe to Primetime Crime on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. Thanks a lot.